0: morning everyone how has this past week been good good Uh, so far in the month of January we have reminded ourselves each week that we have one main thing to focus on and if we keep this one thing in our focus if we keep this one thing on our calendar on our checklist if this is one thing that preoccupies our day it is that idea of thinking great thoughts after God and living joyfully for him. Because God has given us one goal and purpose in life, and that is to enjoy him, to serve him, to honor him, to love him, to be compassionate towards his things and to the rest of the world, to honor, love, and obey. Difficult things when we are faced with everyday distractions and everyday stresses and everyday life. Has anyone ever had a week like that where they just got beat up by life Yeah, And sometimes it may not just be a day or a week. Sometimes it can be a month, right? And sometimes it can go on years just feeling defeated, feeling like you are in that dark place and you can't get out. And so that's why God gives us very simple things to focus on, very one purpose to focus on. And we saw so far that Matthew 6.33 is really that verse that inspires us to have those great thoughts after god and to live joyfully for him if we keep in mind first and foremost the main thing we focus on is seeking first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you if we can keep on our priority list on our calendar on our to-do list i gotta seek god i gotta think great thoughts after him i have to just be consumed with the good things that he has revealed to us and focus on that, think about that, dwell on that, make that part of my daydreaming, the great things and grand things about God, and how do I live joyfully after him? And so far, the first week we saw that one of the things that gets in the way of those great thoughts about God, of seeking his kingdom, is worry. Worry has that ability to just suck the life out of you. It can just debilitate you and freeze you and make you completely unable to think of anything but all the bad things that has, mostly, might happen. And if you get focused and trapped in that life of worry, you become ineffective at your number one main priority, seeking God's kingdom. Because at that moment, when worry starts to overcome you, you stop thinking about God, You stop thinking great thoughts about him. You stop living joyfully, and you'd be consumed with who? Me, myself, I. Everything is about me and how everything is going wrong according to my plans. And that brings in last week's message, the second thing that gets in the way of seeking God in his kingdom, the thing that gets in the way of focusing on his great thoughts and living joyfully for him Is pride pride because all of a sudden the attention again is off God it's off of his kingdom it's off of thinking great thoughts about him and it's again on me myself and I and I become the focus and I become the goal of life how can I please myself how can I promote myself how can I make myself look good in front of others and how can I be rewarded for that And that gets in the way of our number one priority, of seek first the kingdom of God. And so anything we can do to help remind ourselves, I've got one main purpose. All the other things will take care of themselves as I am obedient and diligent in life, but I need to focus on this. I need to wake up each and every day and say, how am I going to seek God's kingdom today? How am I going to see God's greatness And then live for it not everything falls on our shoulders as far as a responsibility sometimes as we see this morning the responsibility for this keeping our focus falls on a third party and so this is not so much a message about worry and humility and pride that we might be struggling with but this is a warning to the entire church to the entire population that you have a responsibility to rightly and correctly reflect God and his truth. And I want to draw our attention, first of all, to 2 Timothy 4, chapter 3 and 4, and see what this problem is that gets in the way of our main thing that doesn't fully rest upon our shoulders. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy is Paul's we think it's Paul's last book that he ever wrote. So this is kind of like his last will and testament, especially to the young pastor that he's been mentoring, Timothy. And these are, these are his, sort of his last words of direction and comfort and encouragement and uh, warning. And he gets to the end of that in chapter 4, and in these two verses gives us an incredible thing to keep in mind as we seek God's kingdom. He says in verse 3, For a time will come. Actually, let me just start in verse 1 because that will give us good context. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So Paul is pulling out all stops here. He says, before God. Before God, my next words you need to pay attention to. These have to be drilled into your mind because God is going to judge the living and the dead. And it's before this holy God, this God of all creation, that I say these next words to you, Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So Paul singles out Timothy here as a preacher of God's word and says, you have a tremendous responsibility before God and Christ Jesus. I charge you, I urge you, I demand of you when you preach, preach faithfully. Preach faithfully so that it has encouragement, but also correction, that there's instruction as well as discipline. He tells Timothy elsewhere, preach the full counsel of God. Let people know exactly what is in his word. And the reason why Paul is so pressing on Timothy is because of verse 3 and 4. He says, there will be a time that will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Turn aside to myths. It says, Timothy, whatever you do in your ministry, however that church fleshes out, whatever that church's goals and mission and vision is, Timothy, keep this one thing. Keep God's word faithfully preached in that pulpit because there'll be a time, Timothy, Timothy, when the people who are coming to visit you as a guest, they don't want to hear about redemption. They don't want to hear about sacrifice. They don't want to hear about humility. They don't want to hear about obedience. They don't want to hear about forgiving people that hurt them. They don't want to hear about keeping their anger in check. They don't want to hear about thinking the best of others. They don't want to hear about not judging others. They don't want to hear about absolutes of right and wrong. They don't want to hear about heaven and hell. Okay, maybe they want to hear about heaven, but they don't want to hear about hell. There's going, to time, there's going to be a time where the church is going to be judged on how good was the story that morning? How much did he make me laugh? How much did those songs well inside of me a feeling? How much did they align to my traditions? There'll be a time where people don't want to hear grace is connected with God's justice. They don't want to hear about the sanctity of life. They don't want to hear about the sanctity of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. They want to hear things that itch their ears, satisfies their curiosity, appeals to their own sense of what's right and wrong. There'll be a time, Timothy, where you are tempted to compromise and to leave this book and to go somewhere else. You've heard of the expression, all roads lead to heaven. Have you heard that expression? And I think I've mentioned this before. I agree with that expression. And now that might, that might make you sit up for a second and go, okay. You're going to have to explain this one, Tim. And I'll explain it. But I do believe all roads lead to heaven. Every religion leads to heaven. Every person's individual belief leads them directly before the throne of God. There just happens to be one road that leads to heaven that's safe. It's a narrow road. Every other road leads to heaven. It leads directly to the throne of God for his judgment. And only one road to peace, and comfort, and mercy, and joy. Everyone gets faced with the God of truth, the God of scripture. But there'll be a time where people don't want that. I, uh, uh, early on in my pastoral career, uh, the pressure was on my shoulders. Uh, Tim, we need more people in the church. It was a church of about 40 people. And uh, I felt this pressure on my own shoulders. Tim, there needs to be more people in the church. There needs to be more people in the church. And so I, uh, I went through this phase where uh, I kind of looked at all these big successful churches that had 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 people in it. And I said, oh, wow, our church is nothing like that. All right, so maybe I need to make us more like that. And so I listened to their preaching. I listened to their messages. And... Um, I noticed one common theme, or a couple themes. One, there were lots of people there, uh, and wow, they seemed to like have a good time because there were lots of laughing, lots of clapping. Um, but one thing was entirely missing from the entire service, and that was the pastor never said, "Look with me at," and blah blah blah, one of the sixty-six books. It was void of scripture. Huge buildings, huge programs, amazing turnouts, full orchestras. But there was very little, very little scripture. Lots of moral stories that could be told in a synagogue. And I remembered a professor who told me once, he said, if at the end of your message, you could have preached that in a Jewish synagogue, then you are in error. If an unbeliever walks away going, that was fantastic, and there's no change of heart, somewhere along that line, I was misguided. Do you know that people behind the pulpit can misguide you? That is terrifying to me. Early on, I, uh, uh, like, I think like most people, standing up and speaking in front of people in public is a pretty scary thing. We, we, can we just kind of come to that agreement? Raising your hand doesn't mean you're coming up here. But no, I mean, that was, that was a dreadful thing. Absolutely dreadfully terrifying in my mind. And I remember the first several times that I preached, maybe even the first couple years, That was the fear that gripped me. What if I forget to say something? What if I stand up there and I'm just silent for five seconds? What if people start staring at me? And well, that should be normal. You shouldn't be sleeping or looking around. Look at me, that's fine. You know, and and it was terrifying, that moment of speaking, speaking. And I read an autobiography by Martin Luther, or, or some biographical material on Martin Luther, and he sort of expressed the same thing when he was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church—that he was always afraid of the speaking part during the mass. What if he got it wrong? And he said later on in his life that fear of speaking in front of people disappeared. It's—it's it's not a fear anymore because uh, you know you're going to mess up. You've got to laugh at yourself and go on. It's okay. It's, it's all right. We're human, flawed vessels. I'm not here to be a professional orator. I'm here to just simply preach God's word through the vessel that God has made, and God has made an imperfect vessel that he's refining, and so he's going to have imperfect language, mispronounce words, and get lost in his speech. I get it. But Luther said, as time went on, he actually got more and more fearful about being in the pulpit. And I said, okay, i got to figure this out. Okay, he's not afraid of speaking in front of people, but he's getting more and more fearful. And he says, young pastor, and I think he's kind of doing this to some young, young priests that were coming out of the Catholic Church, giving this advice, saying, you will find a day that you are so gripped by fear because you stand as a spokesman of God's word to God's people. And if you get one word wrong, God will hold you accountable for that word. And I had a weight fall off my shoulders. Whew, I don't have to be afraid of speaking in front of people. And I had a new weight put on my shoulders that was even heavier, thinking to myself, every time i speak anytime a teacher speaks anytime someone in a discipleship group speaks sometime anyone in a life group speaks and says this is what god says you are standing as a spokesman of god and god says let's see is that really what i said is that really what i said and it turned me from a person who would spend 3 or 4 hours a week studying to someone who spends 20 to 30 hours a week studying because I don't want to get it wrong for your sake because you deserve to hear exactly what God's word is not what Tim thinks not what Tim has learned in books but what God has said in his word through Tim in his personality with his expressions to reach your heart, your mind, your soul. And so I am a little bit terrified every time I stand representing God and speaking on his behalf through his word because I am fearful that I will misrepresent his character, his work, and our responsibility. I'm concerned that I might miss exactly the true intent that he's communicating. And so spending 20 to 30 hours a week studying for a Sunday morning is a small price to pay to make sure that I am trying to get every word right so that you are not misled because I know there is a temptation. If there was a temptation in Paul's day, there is certainly a temptation in today's world that success is measured by money and popularity. Two of which that we are not flowing with great as a church. And so the great temptation is to change the message to win popularity and get more money. That's a common pressure. And so Paul has to have this warning to this young preacher don't fall into that. Because there's going to be a time where everyone will dismiss sound doctrine, they'll question it, they'll deny it, they'll say it's old and outdated. And they're going to want something new and fresh. Uh, for a while, uh, I, I taught a class at a classical Christian school in high school. I taught a class for the, for the juniors and seniors on world religions and cults. And uh, it was a fantastic class because we were able to really debate those hard questions. Why is there a God? Why do we believe there is a God if we can't see him? How do we know Christianity is true and right? Right. How do we know our interpretation of scriptures, right? So we dealt with some really basic, fundamental, hard questions, very honest questions, and I soon realized that there are so many errors that people believe that it's impossible to address the errors. It is far better to simply present the truth. And that was when I was hit with this old memory before I was saved. Before I was saved, uh, oh my goodness, I need to keep this really short. Uh, in our family, we had a, a tradition. Uh, when you were, I think, a freshman and, or was a junior? When you were in high school, you spent two years on my cousin's farm working his pig farm. Every cousin, during the summer, you spent two summers working on a pig farm and that was I'm not a pig farmer (laughs) but you learn things and you had it um, it was disgusting but you know the end result is bacon so that was pretty cool Uh, it was it was part of part of growing up in that family two summers on on the farm and then after you did the two summers on the farm you spent two summers as a bank teller in my uncle's bank in Connecticut and New York. And for a moment there it felt a lot better to wear a suit and tie every morning than it did pig poop shoes everywhere. Uh, But in that very first week of being trained in the bank as a bank teller, uh, we go through all that orientation and then we kind of start to handle money and it was really cool because Part of that training is they gave you a bag of real cash. Now, and I'll, we, we, I don't even remember how much was in there, but it was a lot of money. It was maybe five to $10,000. Everybody got this little bag. And there was stuff written on the back from the Federal Reserve, not legal tender for training only or something like that, but it was, everything else was real about it except that red rubber stamp on the back. And the instructor went through this series of, this is how you recognize real money versus fake money, and all these lists, and all these little security things, and this was still back before they had a lot of the new security measures, and uh, she did it for the purpose of overwhelming you with details. Look at this, and this, and this, and this, and there were like 50 different details that you had to remember for each different denomination and currency, and you were overwhelmed, and then she said, go to lunch, put your money back in the bag, and uh, we'll start this up. So we leave, we come back after lunch, and start down and grab into this bag of money. And she said, I want you to go through all the bills again. And so we went through all of them and she said, anything that looks different to you, put to the side. And what she had done is when we went to lunch, she had put some real counterfeit money in our bags of money that we had already counted and looked through and and touched and handled. And uh, it was immediately noticeable what was fake and counterfeit and what was real. And she goes, all of these lists that I gave you for an hour about every denomination is important. But your gut instinct, when you know what is real and all of a sudden you touch something that is counterfeit, you know it. You immediately know this doesn't feel real. This doesn't look real. This doesn't even smell real. It doesn't have that money smell. And she goes, that is how you're going to determine during the day when someone brings in counterfeit money you're going to immediately recognize it. Not because of these 40 or 50 different features, but because you know the real so well that when the fate comes along, you're going to notice it immediately. And so back to the story about the class. I'm teaching this class on world religion and cults. And I'm beginning to get a little overwhelmed uh, because there are world religions and cults from A to Z. And every year it seems like new ones are popping up, but they're really not new, they're just reinventions of the old stuff. Like Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses, that's all old stuff that the church dealt with in the first century that condemned 1,900 years ago. I mean, nothing is really new as far as those belief systems, they just package it a little bit differently, a few different names, but it really is old, old heresies that the church dealt with in the first, first and second century and already condemned by the various councils. I was overwhelmed, and then I realized, you know, what if I just go back to the basics, teach the truth, and if you are aware of the truth, when error comes, you're gonna quickly recognize that's counterfeit. Go, you know what, I've heard that say, but I don't know if that's what God really said. And it s- sparked in us, a- in that class, this real strong devotion to not focusing on what all the other world religions and cults believe. Because I I had a library just on Mormonism of about 70 books on Mormonism just by itself. And I had read them, I had studied them. um, And then I realized, you know, I'm spending so, that sun is right in my eyes. Uh, I had spent so much time focused on looking at all the different errors that I had stopped focusing on all the truth. If I just focus on the truth, then, I will discern the errors through God's Spirit and His Word. I'll discern the errors. And so you can quickly become overwhelmed with thinking about all the different errors that could possibly creep in into a church, into another world religion, into a cult, and you can become an encyclopedia of catching errors, but I think it is far wiser, far safer, far stronger to focus on just what one book says know it study it let it mature in your heart and your mind and i think you will be able to discern the error so quickly you'll identify the counterfeit by knowing the truth in and out this brings us um, to matthew chapter 7 because jesus has something to say in the sermon on the mount And I know in the notes it says Matthew chapter 6. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, it's going to make no sense whatsoever. So we're in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 23. Matthew 7, 15 to 23. In which Jesus warns about this very thing. He says, starting in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, See, even Jesus said, there is this, in the back of your mind, you need to be aware of this. As you are seeking me first and foremost, as my kingdom is your focus, as your main thing is to think great thoughts about God and live joyfully for him, as that's my main thing, there are other people out there trying to distract you from that. There are other people there that are trying to get you off track. And the way they do that is they make very religious commentary, very religious speak, very Christianized language for the purpose of getting you off track. Not to follow God through that narrow gate, but to follow the rest of the world through the broad gate. Because isn't there safety in numbers? Isn't it much better to go with the flow than against the flow? Isn't it much better to sit at that lunch table, and laugh at the rude jokes? Isn't it much better just simply to go along with the company policy and cheat your clients than to go against the flow and do what's right? You see, not only do we have to worry internally about, well, I don't mean the word worry, not only do we have to notice worry and pride in our own hearts, but we also have to be aware that there are others out there trying to distract us from our main goal, of seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus says, there are people that are going to come in looking like sheep, looking pristine, great words of advice, but they're inside, they're wolves. Inside, they have no fruit. Inside, they prophesy in my name, but I don't even know them. They don't know me. They don't seek after me. They seek after their own glory or the glory of others. So you have to be aware. Be diligent. Be diligent. Be diligent. You know, in Acts 17, and we're not turning there, but in Acts 17, there's a great story about Paul as a missionary. And Paul is going about doing missionary things and preaching. He goes into a town, and he just goes into the town square and starts preaching. And he goes to this little town called Berea in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and starts preaching. And um, there's a lot of Jews there that are coming to faith. And he's having great success, but there's a little verse in there that says, uh, the Bereans received the word warmly, but they searched Scripture to make sure what Paul was saying was true. Wow. <sighs> Whoever had to search Scripture to find out what Paul was saying was true? I mean, if there was any man in the New Testament that spoke truth, it was Paul. <laughs> But even this small little town knew, no, no, no. Air can creep in so easily. It is so deceitful. It is so possible for someone to just speak with great, to just speak great words and people will follow. And so they were trained early on. And that's why they're called Bereans. And that's why we use that term affectionately. Well, you need to be Berean about it meaning you need to go and search scripture for yourself, does it truly say this? And I'll tell you, you need to do the same for me. Don't just simply go, well, he's the pastor. He must know what he's talking about. I mean, he he talks about it every week. It's got to be true. Oh, please don't do that to me. Please don't do that to me. Don't take my word for it, ever. Seek scripture. Read it and study it yourself. Study it. I guarantee you, and this has happened before, and I guarantee you that if you come to me out of humility and real respect, and you say, Tim, something just bugged me from that message. And I went back and I heard it again, and and I think, I think you got this wrong here. We will sit down and we'll talk about it, all right? We will talk, I give you that freedom to come and talk about that, and I give you my guarantee that I will be respectful as we talk about that, okay? Is that a deal? Amen. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because I need that accountability, because if I'm not given that accountability, I know I can be persuaded to err in order to get results of people and money. That temptation is so real, you can't believe it. And so that's good. And Jesus says, hey, there's going to be times, Paul says, there's going to be times when people are going to flock to you because you have great words, but it's not me. And Jesus says, you've got to be careful because there are people that want to mislead you. Do you have any idea how quickly? Ugh, no, I'm not going to go there. Uh, no, that, that's way too much time. I've got to got to move on with this. Uh, so, in Acts chapter 20, turn there with me to Acts chapter 20. This is Paul again, and Paul is in Acts chapter 20, really at the end of his missionary career. What's happening is he's making a final tour of all the churches that he planted because he's been arrested and he's eventually going to Rome to be executed by uh, the emperor at the time. Uh, But on his way, he makes certain stops knowing that his end is near and he's going to give his final words of instructions to people. And one of the churches that was very near and dear to him was the church he started in Ephesus, uh, which is also why he wrote the book of Ephesians, same, same people group, same church that he started. And uh, again, this is in uh, modern-day southern Turkey. And he has these words. He gathers the elders together. Everyone is crying. Everyone is distraught because Paul says, hey, this is my last time I'm going to see you. Um, he was a father to them spiritually. And he has these words to tell them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And it's the same words that are for us today. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking specifically to the elders and pastors here. Uh, Keep watch of yourself. Okay, so I have to be accountable as well as the flock that God has made you overseers of. The Holy Spirit has done this. And be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. There's your value. You were bought with Jesus' blood. Tremendous value. And Paul says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. What does a wolf do to a sheep? What, what, are, what is their natural relationship we see in the world? Cozy little buddies? No. What does a wolf want to do? Nibble, nibble, right? Uh, this past week, it was pretty cool. We... Uh, uh, where we live in pueblo west and, a, and if you're a rancher i know it's not cool but we have lots of prairie dogs and there's this little area that we call prairie dog lane because there are lots of prairie dogs here and it's okay they're cute right they just kind of sit up there sniff and from my perspective they're cute i know from people that own ranches they're they're terrible but they're really cute and then one day or last week, we were walking by, or driving by, there. I think it was Caleb and I in the car, and there were like, no prairie dogs out. I'm like, this is really unusual, this is strange. Well, that's because we saw two coyotes walking through that field, circling where Prairie Dog Lane is. Uh, There is no Prairie Dog Lane, that's just what we named the roads in that area. Uh, They were looking for a snack. And so naturally, wolves and sheep, coyotes and prairie dogs, they are not, They don't work together. And it's not the prairie dog, it's the wolves that want to attack and destroy the sheep. And Paul says, this is the same thing with the church. If the church is referred to as a flock, and Jesus is the shepherd, and we are the sheep, then there are wolves, those on the outside, that want to harm us. Some of them literally want to kill us. And some are super happy just making us distracted, From our main goal of seeking first the kingdom of god and his righteousness getting us focused on other things getting us arguing about other things getting us sidetracked so we don't do what god has called us to do and they are super happy because they have destroyed the flock when we stop seeking after god first and foremost they've won and so paul says i know that after i leave savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock verse 30 Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So be on guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Day and night Paul spent teaching that church what truth was. Day and night he was reminding them who Jesus was. Day and night, he was reminding them who God was. He was giving them the real so that when the counterfeit came in, they would be able to identify and go, that's false. It has no place here in this congregation, has no place in this flock, has no place in God's kingdom. That is false. And you have to have the bravery, the courage to call that out, to rebuke it. In love, you have to be the courage. I can't see everything that happens in your life. Well, I don't see anything that happens in your life except on a Sunday morning. So I have no idea what's going on the other 167 hours of the week. If you are being inundated with falsehood, it's your responsibility to be on guard. Be on guard. Be on guard. Remember what was taught. Remember what was taught uh closing up here i want to go back to matthew chapter 7 real quick because the last verse in that section we kind of passed over uh that was verse 24 of matthew chapter 7 because it gives us a way of protecting ourselves as we do our our take-home kind of portion it gives us a way of protecting ourselves two things and one is found in matthew chapter 7 verse 24 and that says, therefore, whoever, uh, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against the house, and it, yet it did not fall because it had the foundation on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain came down... The streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with great, with a great crash. Jesus is saying this right on the heels of false prophets and false teachers. You want to protect yourself from error, from the counterfeit, from what's popular, maybe not what is right? Then we have to put into practice these words of Jesus. That is a clear, fundamental, basic step put into practice recognizing God in his word. And the only way to do that, the only way to become artful in it and consistent in it and practiced in it and masterful in it is to do what? Read it. You read it. Read it. Read it. Read it. Oh, Tim, that becomes too much. Then don't read that much. It is far better that you have a verse in your mind during the day than four chapters that you've forgotten. Right? Yes. And so instead of trying to make sure you check off your list of reading through the Bible in a year, read a verse a day. But keep it in your heart. Build on that verse. Build it, build it, build it, build it. Because that will be a protection against a world that has enemies with us and wants nothing more than to discredit us and destroy us. And the only thing that's going to protect you, those 167 hours, is having this in your heart and mind. And in conclusion, And I know we're doing a lot of Bible flipping, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll read this verse, verse uh, 15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That's what we have to become. Good at handling God's truth. I don't need to know every error. I don't need to know every counterfeit. I don't need to know every world religion, its history, and its dogma. I don't need to know all that. I just simply need to know this. And that's our call, and that's our charge. And I think if we keep simply God's word as our focus, if we make this our passion, if we make this our go-to for what-do-I-do moments in life, I think we are well-protected from others coming in and trying to mislead us and misguide us to harm us and to destroy us. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Father, you call us to a a pretty large task. It is so hard to keep every verse in our mind, to guard ourselves against falsehood and error. So Lord, help us. Give us a great measure of your Spirit that he might lead and guide us in all righteousness and all truth. Help us, Father, to be diligent to practice your word. Let us practice a verse, Father. We're not asking to practice an entire chapter or an entire book at once, but help us practice a verse so that we might continue to have great thoughts about you to seek your kingdom first and your righteousness. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you very much for coming today. Can't wait for next week's last sermon on the series of how to keep the main thing in front of us all year long.